everyone. Welcome to episode 184 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Welcome to Scarlet Summer. If you are not a newsletter subscriber, this may be news to you. Yeah, we announced our Scarlet Summer, which includes our third quarter read-along at the end of last episode. So this time we're talking about it up front at the beginning of this episode because we're super excited and we're starting in July with the Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah, I'm super excited about this. It's one that we've both read, but it's been a while. We were inspired to choose this classic because of Alice Hoffman's new book that's coming out in September called The Invisible Hour. Yes. And she's a huge fan of Hawthorne and The Scarlet Letter in particular was very influential in her reading and thinking life. So we thought, wow, what another great opportunity to combine some different types of reading into one summer long adventure like we did with The Summer of Little Women. Right. And that was based on the anniversary of Little Women. We worked backwards when we found out that Alice Hoffman had a new book coming out and The Scarlet Letter was an influence. We thought, ooh, we can do this. We'll go backwards and start with The Scarlet Letter and move forward. Exactly. And so The Scarlet Letter was published in 1850. Emily and I plan to start at the weekend of July 1st. That weekend will be the official kickoff of Scarlet Summer. A fun fact is that Hawthorne was born on July 4th. Another reason to set off sparklers on July 4th. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now we've heard from some listeners, a couple people like Melinda and Julie said they have done rereads as adults and really appreciated the reread. Yes. We've also heard from people like our buddy Kate and others who are like the Scarlet Letter. Uh, No, thanks. I'll be watching from the sidelines. (laughs) Right. So wherever you fall on that continuum, we hope you'll join us for all of Scarlet Summer or part of Scarlet Summer. We also have a third book in the mix, Hester. By Lori Lico Albanese. Another book inspired by The Scarlet Letter. And we've had some listeners and friends on Goodreads say that they've read it, they've listened to it on audio, and they've really enjoyed it. We are going to be hosting Zoom conversations for The Scarlet Letter and for The Invisible Hour. The Scarlet Letter Zoom is both virtual and in person. We're going to be in Concord, Mass at the public library there. We'd love to have you join us either way. It's Wednesday, July 12th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Yes. So we'll have in-person conversation and simultaneous Zoom conversation as well. We know our listeners are pretty spread out around the globe. Hopefully for everyone, this will be a good way to participate. And for those of you who can join us in Concord, we plan on having a whole day up there starting with a visit to Hawthorne's gravesite at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, where other really influential 19th century writers have been laid to rest, including Louisa May Alcott, Emerson, Thoreau, and others. It is just a beautiful 19th century cemetery. We'll be visiting the Concord Bookstore. Yes. And hopefully having a tour of one of his homes in Concord. 
Yeah, one of them I don't think is currently open, and one is the Old Manse. I think we can do a tour there. Yeah. So, and that one's really interesting because actually Emerson owned it. This is the house that Hawthorne moved into after he and Sophia, his wife, married. And as a wedding present, Thoreau landscaped and put in a garden for them. So if you're a 19th century literature buff, it is the place to be. (laughs) Yes, we're going to explore. We also have a Zoom read along for the Invisible Hour on September 17th, which is Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Email us bookcougars at gmail.com. All of this is going to be in the show notes. We also have a special new tab on the website for Scarlet Summer. All of that is there. Just a quick recap for those of you who are interested. July is the Scarlet Letter. August is Hester. September is the Invisible Hour. And I think we may have misspoken. The Invisible Hour pub date is in August. We're reading it in September. September, Right. I have already put a hold on the audiobook in my library system. Let your library systems know about this book. Put your holds in and hopefully you'll be first or second in line. Right. Yeah. (laughs) What else do we need to tell people? We have a bingo card. Oh, my gosh. Yes. We are doing a bingo. So we tried to make it fairly easy to get bingo. We have our three read-along books repeated three times each for squares, and there's a free square. We hope that it will be, you know, fairly easy for people. We're already getting wind that some people are making substitutions, witchy substitutions of some fictional books that involve witches. Oh my gosh, there's a lot out there. And on our Goodreads page, We do have a thread to talk about other witchy Hawthorne related books and stories and movies that you may have watched or want to read or just recommend to other people because we know there's a lot out there. Yes. Yeah. I just wanted to let everybody know, too, we had a bit of a typo on our first bingo card that went out to everybody in the newsletter. I apologize for that. It's been updated. And so the bingo card that you download from the website has corrections made to it typo free typo free that was emily i have trouble with names yeah it was a book <laughs> title but it's it's easy to yeah. to figure out what we meant so emily what are you currently reading well i am still reading my big book for the summer it's called devil in the grove by gilbert king i did finally get into the audiobook as well and it's narrated by peter francis james this is a heavy book it is not easy but it's very interesting. It's about Thurgood Marshall, who was an early lawyer in the NAACP. He also was one of our Supreme Court justices. This book is about his early years as a lawyer. And when he started to try this case with the Groveland boys down in Florida, where four black men were accused of raping a young white woman. And it's painful. What's most painful about it is the mistreatment of these black men by the law, extraordinarily abusive treatment to coerce a confession that was not true. I'm about halfway through. I can only read or listen to one or two chapters a day. It's just much too painful, really, to listen to. I have one person who's buddy reading with me, Tina. She's almost finished, and she says the same thing. It's just 
painful and very frustrating book, but I am glad to be reading it because I'm learning a lot. I have a hard time with history, the way that I can consume it and really be able to understand it. And I feel like this author, Gilbert King, is doing a really good job of placing us in time as we're reading it. And this is taking place in the late 40s and early 50s so far. All right. Well, I'm into my big book, too, which is painful for different reasons. Um, (laughs) Ulysses by James Joyce. I'm over the halfway point, which is really great and amazing. I'm happy to still be into it. I've talked before that, you know, initially I had this really ambitious reading schedule and I was just going to read through it and not consult any reference works and just get that first reading underneath my belt. Well, the reading schedule got tossed very early on. And then I found myself in the library consulting reference books one day because I thought, come on, I need some help. So that really motivated me and and helped some things make sense. I'm very happy that I did that. I know our listener, Colleen, had tried for a long time to read it in that manner. And then when she finally picked up some guides, she was able to read it successfully. So I feel like I'm following that plan and it's going well. I can see why the book was banned. I mean, it's pretty explicit in some areas that people didn't talk about in earlier literature, at least not Victorian literature, body parts, body functions. I'm happy, though, to be reading it because it is an amazing book in terms of Joyce's knowledge and his style. Like there's one episode he calls them episodes or scholars have since called them episodes. I'm not sure where the term episode began, but there's not chapters in this book. There are different writing styles that form these episodes. And one of them, he takes all of the different genre and writing style types from the earliest days of writing in, I guess, European literature from like the early pagan myths up until Charles Dickens And as he's writing this episode and describing what's going on, these different writing styles come in and it's fascinating. And just to think about how he put that knowledge to use of the different writing styles while also having this follow the Odyssey in terms of scenes and what characters are doing. I mean, it's brilliant. It's not very readable as like somebody who just wants to pick up a novel and read. And that way it is a challenge to read. But having the summary of the episode to read after reading the episode or more likely what's been happening is as I'm reading it, I'll get to a point where I get really frustrated and then I'll look at the summary a little bit and then that helps give me context and then I can carry on or say, okay, that's good. And I might just skim the rest of it. I'm not a skimmer. But I feel like what I want from this first reading is the gist of things, which I feel like I'm getting. So when it comes up in conversation, I understand what people are talking about, which is really nice. And this book has been popping up everywhere. So like when we were in Newport last week, we were sitting in the library and there was a rehearsal going on and we'd been sitting and doing some work and Emily coming back from a a bio break had asked like, what's going on? It was a rehearsal of Ulysses going on for the Bloomsday celebration that the library would be hosting this week. Amazing. Cause like we heard all these accents, but you know, we were working and I had earplugs in at one point, I would have not identified it at all. And then later when we got to charter books, 
the owner was there with Claire Fuller. We ran into them while getting a tour with the manager. And he's like, hey, one of you is reading Ulysses, right? And I was like, yeah, I am. So then he launched a story about his experience with it. So it's just really a conversation starter or yeah, stopper. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Ulysses, um, hopefully by the next episode, I'll have it finished. And I appreciate everyone who's been reading along with me. People have decided to let it go for now. Britta is still hanging in there. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks to everybody who's been talking about it with me. Great. I'm reading Yogurt and Whey, Recipes of an Iranian Immigrant Life by Homa Dashtaki. She's the owner of White Mustache Yogurt, which is this beautiful yogurt that's thick and delicious and has yummy fig or date on the bottom. And I've always run to the Grand Central Market on my way to catch a train to buy myself this treat of this yogurt. And when I saw that she had a cookbook coming out, I couldn't resist. And as we speak, I have started my own homemade yogurt at home. I'm on day two. It's a three day process. Yesterday, I bought raw milk from our local health food store, boiled it away. And I had been in the city over the weekend and got myself a white mustache yogurt because you need some yogurt to start. And she recommends, of course, if you have an opportunity to use ours, that'd be great. So I took the opportunity. <laughs> it's a beautiful cookbook. She is an Iranian immigrant, as the title suggests. And the front matter talks a lot about her family's history, how she and her father came to start making this beautiful yogurt. And Chris, one of the things I thought you might appreciate is a very common way that they consume yogurt is with potato chips. Oh, cool. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So they just dip potato chips in their yogurt. That makes perfect sense. Because, you know, there's cream and onion dip. Sour that, cream and sour onion. Sour cream and onion. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. I should say Chris loves potato chips. I that love, might have seemed random to people. <laughs> yeah, I love any kind of chip. Potato <laughs> chip, tortilla chip. Yeah. There's even now tortilla chips made out of popcorn, mm -hmm. which are pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And cauliflower. They're doing all sorts of interesting yeah. things. Any kind of chip. Yeah. I'm there for it. So this is beautiful. The other thing she does is she takes whey, which is the byproduct of making yogurt when you strain it that often gets thrown away. She has all of these recipes in her book for using whey, which I don't have my whey yet. Once I have whey, I'll choose a recipe. So maybe I'll report back on the next episode. I'm also reading a fiction book that's food related called Mastering the Art of French Murder by Colleen Cambridge. Nice. I got to meet her and got a copy of this book when I was down in New York with you at the Cherry Bomb Jubilee. And she's one of our people because she came right up to me and she's like, does anyone realize how hot it is in this building? And it's about to be filled with middle-aged women. <laughs> and I said, I agree. They need to turn up the AC. But she writes under four different pen names. She writes under Colleen Cambridge, which is what this book is penned under. And that's where she writes these cozy murder mysteries. Colleen Gleason, which is the Gardella Vampire Hunters series. Ooh. Yeah. Five books in. Something to think about. Got Chris's attention. Yeah. I mean, chips, vampires. This is a yeah. great episode. <laughs> <laughs> and then she writes under the pen name Alex Mandon, where she has historical mysteries and then C.M. Gleason with two different sets of adventure murder mystery series. 
And her website, which we'll link in the show notes, is great because it has each of her pen names and then they have a printable link where you can download all the books under that pen name, which would be really convenient to take to the library or if you just wanted to understand what she writes. This book is about Julia Child and a friend of hers. The way it starts is they're shopping at the local market getting groceries, Julia's suffering from a mayonnaise problem where suddenly she can't get her mayonnaise to emulsify. And they get back to Julia's home and they find a dead body. And the knife that was used to kill this young woman is one of Julia's kitchen knives. Mm. And that's as far as I've gotten. Again, it's called Mastering the Art of French Murder, an American in Paris Mystery by Colleen Cambridge. Nice. See, more inspiration for my Willa Cather vampire mystery. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Chris, what did you just read? You know, I took a break from Ulysses and I read Even Though I Knew the End by C.L. Polk. And this is a a review copy that Tor.com had sent us when we requested it. And I feel like I started it, but then something with school probably swept me away from it. So I was looking for something short to read the other day to take a break from Ulysses. And this totally captured. I, I started it at bedtime and I finished it the next morning. It's a novella length story, 133 pages or so. It is a fantasy historical lesbian love story. It's set in Chicago of like the 1930-ish time period, 30s, maybe early 40s. I'm not 100% on that. She's a photographer and she photographs crime scenes and other things, kind of like a private eye type situation. And she has a lover who is very Catholic, very devout kind of person who is just very different. You know, they're very different, but they're in love and everything. And there's a white city vampire on the loose slaying people. So she's called in to take photos. And then, of course, curiosity, you know what that does, pulls her in further. And then you find out why and who hired her. There's magic involved. It's a fantasy world as well. A little horror with the blood and the vampire threat angels and demons. There's so much packed into this small story that I want to read everything now that Polk has written because I enjoyed it so much. And she uses actual buildings and places in Chicago, which I also appreciated, but she doesn't overdo it. So you don't feel like, oh, somebody did their research. You feel like you're in a place. And if you don't know Chicago, it's fine. I wouldn't think somebody would feel like they're lost. And I learned a thing or two about an institution in the city that housed people who were initially down on their luck. And then eventually it became not an insane asylum, but a place where like queer people were put to try to be corrected and things like that. So really, like I said, a lot packed into this small story. I highly recommend it, even though I knew the end by C.L. Polk. And thank you again to Tor.com for the review copy. I read The Whispers by Ashley Audrain. This is her sophomore novel. Her debut novel, The Push, was one of my top 10 books of 2021. This book is told from four points of view, Blair, Rebecca, Mara, and Whitney. 
It's all about motherhood. So if that's your bailiwig, this book is for you. If it's not, this book would not be for you. It's in current day and they're all living in this neighborhood that's gentrified. Some of them live in homes that were original to the neighborhoods, whereas others have torn down the home and built these mansions. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy between the financial situation of some of the characters. But all of them have to do with motherhood in some version or another, whether one of them is trying to have a child and not succeeding. Someone has career aspirations and isn't as interested in being a mother to her children. Another is very interested in being a mother, but a little bored with her life. And then one of them who's been in the neighborhood forever and is older has lost her child and is sitting on her porch and bearing witness to the actions in the neighborhood. The story revolves around one of the characters who's enjoying some infidelity in her marriage is probably the best way to say it, and isn't very interested in being a parent and is having trouble with one of her children who's neurodivergent. Or that part was actually a little unclear to me, whether it's neurodivergent or sometimes maybe you just don't hit it off with one of your kids. And that was more the impression I got. And that child Xavier suffers an accident and ends up in the hospital. Mm. And a lot of the story then revolves around that incident. It was a pretty painful book to read. I stuck with it because it's a page turner. You want to see what happens. But I'm not going to say that I enjoyed it. It was painful to see all these different aspects of motherhood. And I thought it was slightly overwrought, whereas the push was more shocking This one was slightly overwrought. You know, it is her sophomore novel. I know those can be hard. So again, the themes are marriage, infidelity, motherhood, career versus children, having children that you may not necessarily relate to very well. It was interesting. I read it. (laughs) It's just out now. Again, that's called The Whispers by Ashley Audrain. The other book I read came to me via The Gentleman Caller's Sister. It's called Thoughts from the Oak by Audrey Calasanti. She is a poet and a friend of Allison's, who's also a Patreon member of the Book Cougars. Thank you, Allison. This is about her experience raising two children that have serious health challenges. And she really takes you through the experience through these poems I really enjoyed it. Her poems are really beautiful. At the end, she did do a few experimental poems, and I didn't enjoy those as much. But then when you get to the end, she has acknowledgments, but she also has a notes section that explains some of those poems. Mm. And once I read that and then went back and read them, I was like, oh, that makes more sense now. (laughs) One of them is written where the poem mirrors itself. I'd never seen that before. It mirrored itself in how the lines are written or the poem breadcrumbs models a mirror poem in which the first stanza repeats backwards in the following stanza. Oh, cool. And then she had another poem called optimism is written in anagram form using letters solely from the title in the last word of each sentence. So she did some 
I mean, I wouldn't call them tricks. I'm sure these are real poetry styles of writing poems. But when I was reading them, I was like, no, they just felt different than the other poems. Mm -hmm. And I got when I got to the end, I'm like, oh, because she was trying to do something different, you know, and they felt that way. But, you know, there's a lot of pain here. And some of it is worry for your children. One of them suffers from epilepsy. She really takes you through that journey in these poems. But then there's also the pain of it seemingly her partner couldn't take the heat and stepped out of the responsibility of helping with the children. And that was hard to read about. Mm -hmm. And then the challenges of being a mother, coupled with a mother of kids that have some serious needs. Yeah. As if being a mother of kids with no health problems isn't hard enough. (laughs) Yeah. So again, that's called Thoughts from the Oak by Audrey Colasanti. And then I also read, I've needed some foils to the heaviness of Devil in the Grove. And we got this arc months ago, and it's out now. And I picked it up just on a wing and a prayer to see if I liked it. It's called Graceland by Nancy Crochier. This book grabs you from the very first page. And I did some research and she's actually won some awards. I guess they give like awards for first page contests or something like that. And I can totally see why she's won. It captures your imagination right away. So is that Elvis's Graceland? This is Elvis's Graceland. This book is a multi-generational road trip book, but also a chase. There's two road trips going on. It's told from three points of view, a grandmother, a daughter, and then the granddaughter. And the grandmother is kind of having her last hurrah. She had apparently a fling with Elvis. She was a soap opera star, very dramatic. She's now on oxygen and has a tank that she takes behind her. And she asks her daughter, Hope to take her to Graceland and Hope has been banished from Memphis, which we don't know why they are now all living in Boston. So Hope says no. So Olivia convinces her granddaughter, Dylan, who is a 16 year old with pink hair and a pink VW Beetle. That's pretty darn old to drive her down to Graceland. So they take off unbeknownst to Hope, who chases behind them in her own car, driven by her cousin, who is a cross-dressing character who is so good, whose name is George or Jordan, depending on how she is dressed. In this book, she uses the she pronoun because she is dressed as a woman. She says, I'll go with you, but I want to go as Jordan, which is fine with her cousin. It is hilarious. It is heartfelt. It is poignant. And everyone has some secrets with the exception of Dylan, who is the granddaughter, who is kind of a rebel in her own way and gets to know her grandmother on this trip. I loved it so much. I highly recommend if you're looking for a very well written, heartfelt, funny, poignant book, Graceland is for you. Very cool. So again, that's called Graceland. It's out now by Nancy Crochier. This is her first novel. It's a debut novel. Nice. So, Chris, Biblio Adventures. Wow. We went on a fabulous day trip to Newport, Rhode Island last week and had a blast. Such a good time. 
Yeah, it was really fun. We've been having experiencing some problems with the air here due to the fires in Canada. So we weren't sure we were going to be able to go. But then it turned out Rhode Island's air was cleaner than our air. So we did it. So we went. Yeah. And, you know, when we got there in the morning, you can still smell the smoke a little bit in the haze. But then by late afternoon or mid afternoon, it was blue skies again up there, which was lovely. So we went to the Redwood Library in Athenaeum, which is the oldest library in America still operating in its original location. And it was the first purpose-built library building in what was then the British colonies in America. And it was founded in 1747, and the building was finished in 1750. And it's beautiful. We had a great time. We both did the audio tour, which is available just on their website. So we listened via our own phones and our own headphones and just walked around. It was about 20 minutes, which was perfect. Pointed out information about the portraits that are hanging on the walls and the architecture of the building. Yeah, because it's had some additions over the year. It started as just a square library building with two side offices. And then in... The 18th century, at some point, there was a reading room put on. And then in the 19th century, there's what's called the delivery room added. And then in 1912, new stacks area was added. And all of these additions are pretty harmonious. The tour made a point to talk about that. Yeah. You know, architecturally harmonious. It's not like... Unfortunately, you know, when there was a grand old building from the 19th century and then in the 1970s, they added a square addition to it or something like that. With bricks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So it's very harmonious and just beautiful. Such a beautiful space. And the staff there were so friendly. It is a membership library, meaning that it's not a public library. They don't get public funding. It's all member supported they were very gracious and saying, you're, you're free to walk around. You can work at any of the tables. Which we did for a couple hours, which was lovely. And Chris, I should say, wrote a beautiful blog post about this library, which we will link to in the show notes. And when we were done with that, we walked down to the public library down the street. Yes. Not far away. Not at all. That's a beautiful public library. I didn't catch what year it was built, but it's not ultra modern, but it's definitely on the newer side. Very well lit, beautiful, lots of great workspace, which we took advantage of. They also have a wonderful Friends of the Library bookstore. And it is a bookstore, like it is a big space. Yeah, luckily, really seriously, luckily, we got there and it was only open for 10 more minutes or we probably would have walked away with stacks of books. The prices were really reasonable, really well organized, Mm -hmm. wonderful library. And then we... And that was downstairs. We walked upstairs, found some nice tables and worked again there, which was so nice. We also should say we ate very well. Oh, man, the food did not disappoint this trip. We had kind of an early lunch at a place called Roots, which is a vegetarian restaurant. Delicious. So delicious. We both got grain bowls and on the way to our author event, we had about 45 minutes to eat. We didn't have much time and just happened upon a taqueria called La Vecina. And we got Mexican street food, delicious tacos. Oh my God. The best tacos I have had in decades. Yeah. I mean, my taste, like 
I said, oh my God, my taste buds are just buzzing with all these tastes. And Emily, who is much more of the foodie, is like, it's it's complicated or complex taste. Yeah, is that what layered you, flavors. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. Perfect. Really, really good. Yeah. Young female executive chef that we got to meet briefly. So our mouths were buzzing as we walked up the street to Charter Books for an event with the author Claire Fuller and her new book, The Memory of Animals. Such a great event. Yeah, such a fun time to meet her. I mentioned earlier we were getting the tour of the bookstore and ran into Claire Fuller with the owner and chatted with her there. And it's always so much fun when you know an author because of their author photo. And then you see them in the wild and it's like, oh, I know that face. You right. know? Such a fun <laughs> experience. But her event was wonderful. I mean, she told some fabulous stories about the origins of her latest book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also just the process that she goes through with her writing, which is really interesting. And we should say this book does have a pandemic theme, but she started writing this book far before the pandemic started. So she teased a little bit that, you know, be careful about what I write about because things come true. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how amazing is that? That's just one of those weird coincidences that. Yeah. It's just, yeah. She'd been to New York, Boston, I think, and then came to Newport and then was heading to Chicago, Chicago. Milwaukee, Madison. Yeah. And then I think she's going to be in Seattle too eventually. Mm -hmm. So check it out. I don't, she might be. I think when this episode comes out, she might be just finishing. But if you're on the West Coast, check her website because there might still be dates. She was very entertaining and fun to listen to. I read her book, Bitter Orange, and I love that book so much. And I asked her a question about that, which I don't normally do. Like usually when I'm going to see an author, the focus is on their new book. And I haven't read her new book yet. But that one, you know, I read it several years ago now. And it's one that truly does pop into my mind, you know, different scenes from it because it was so atmospheric. Yeah. So I was happy she was willing to take a question about an older book. Yes, indeed. She was very open to questions and told some fun stories. I asked her a question about being a part of the Women's Prize. Mm -hmm. um, And she told us about that experience, too. The relief kind of of it being over, (laughs) which I could totally understand. So it was a fantastic day. We had a really good time. When she signs the book, there is a thread about an octopus in the memory of animals. And she signs it with and puts a really sweet octopus stamp in the book. Yeah, so that was fun. So the winner of our Patreon giveaway is going to get that copy that she signed right there for us. And we took a photo of her signing it. We'll include that in the, with the book. Yes, that's <laughs> right. And um, if you would like to become a patron, we'd love to have you. We do monthly book giveaways on the 15th of each month. Yeah, That is the book this month. So Newport, we will be back for oh sure. Great place. And yeah. Charter Books is a fabulous bookstore. Fiction upstairs, nonfiction downstairs, a kids section that has recently had murals painted by our friend Alyssa Sweet. Yes. And you can go on her feed. Maybe I'll try to link to that. Her Instagram mm. feed shows her painting these beautiful murals of sea creatures, etc. It was the Flowers. perfect, yeah, yeah, perfect backdrop for this book, actually. And she's just finished another set of murals at Bank Square Books and Mystic. Yeah. And she takes commissions, you know, if you have something you would like painted, sea creatures and flowers. She just does such great work. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I have one of her bird stickers on my file cabinet here at Book Cougars HQ. Nice. 
It was a great day, and we had several listeners pipe in and say, I hope you got to stay. I hope you walked the cliff walk. I hope this. I hope that. We didn't. We were too busy, but we will be back to do some of those things you suggested. Thank you. Yeah, we sure will. I mean, we did both have work to get done, and both of those libraries were wonderful places to work. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just back from a Biblio adventure in New York City where I went to visit Aunt Ellen. You were missed. We had a good time. I took the gentleman caller. Aunt Ellen is spending most of her time in Berkeley, California these days, but she's back for a short period of time. We stayed a couple nights with them. We got to go to the Tribeca Film Festival, which I've always wanted to do. The only reason I'm mentioning this is because the movie we saw is called Anthem. Supposedly, it comes out via Hulu on June 28th. And this is a movie about a composer and pianist, Chris Bowers, in partnership with music producer Dahi, tasked with the project of trying to write a new national anthem for the United States. Our national anthem was originally written by a British person. It can be very controversial. There has been controversy of late with people taking a knee during the national anthem in order to protest. People throughout history have been embittered by people singing the national anthem in different ways. So they did a road trip and visited five cities and talked to different people about some of the backdrop of music from this country, like the blues, Motown, country music. And then where they ended their road trip was Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they talked to a group of indigenous people from the Muskegee tribe, including our poet laureate, Joy Harjo. I gasped when I saw her. (laughs) I think I've made it clear this is a documentary. There's kind of this tension as you're watching the movie, like, are they going to be able to write a new national anthem? Or are they going to decide it's an impossible task, which some of the musicians along the way suggested, like, hats off to you. Good luck. (laughs) You know, right. It's going to be like a 12 hour song. Right, Right, exactly. (laughs) And what they end up doing is they do go back to the West Coast, they develop a baseline tune, and then they invited four women from these different spots that they visited to come and write the lyrics. And they did it in one day. And they showed a clip and there were some heated moments, as you might imagine, they brought together four very different women with different backgrounds. One had the background of a white country singer and her family for years has served in different branches of the military. Another woman was Latino and her family. Many of them are undocumented and are very politically astute family, you know, and then Joy Harjo was there in the room and another woman was a black country singer. And so it was an interesting mix. At the end of the movie, they do sing and play the new anthem that they developed. And then the credits roll and they rolled out a piano and the Harlem choir came out and Chris Bowers, the pianist, and they sang the anthem. It was pretty exciting. My favorite part, of course, was Joy Harjo. Yeah. And the way the anthem ends is with her doing some spoken poetry. And I thought that was super cool. Cool. I look forward to watching that. Yeah. Ellen and I went to Orchard Street, which is around the corner from where she lives on the Lower East Side. And we hit two bookstores. One was one she had no idea existed. Neither did I. And it's called P&T Knitwear. They have a podcast studio that's open to the public. Very cool. 
great events, a huge event space with this really cool tiered seating, a cafe. It was really colorful and bright, beautiful bookstore. It's so cool. The pictures you posted were really neat. And I noticed Amy Bloom's going to be there. She had just she been there. Just been, okay. Yes, yeah. we missed her. And then coming this week, they had a, a novel that was just coming out that's about a violin player, and they were going to have a violin player there. So it seems like they have really interesting events. If you live in New York or are visiting, I would highly recommend you check it out. PNT Knitwear started the Gotham Book Prize, which I didn't know anything about. It's awarded annually to a book that takes place in New York City or is about New York. $70,000 is the prize. In 21 was the first year they gave it away, and it was awarded to Deacon King Kong by James McBride, which is a book on my list. Yeah. Now, I've heard of that prize, but I didn't know it was through that bookstore. Yeah, I didn't either. Wow. Yeah. The founders of the bookstore started it. Okay. And then in 22, it was given to Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott. And in 2023, they split it between two books, The Sewing Girl's Tale by John Wood Sweet, and then Stories from the Tenants Downstairs by Siddick Fofana. Hmm. I hadn't heard of either of those books. Down the street is Sweet Pickle Bookstore, which Chris and I did want to get to last time we were there and didn't manage. Really tiny small used bookstore, very narrow, filled with jars of pickles (laughs) and books. (laughs) And if you have books you're interested in trading, they will trade you four books, you get two pounds of pickles. That's a great trade. Yep. Now, I love those pickles on the shelf. Do they have different flavors? They did. Did you try any? I did not try any, and I didn't even buy any because... I didn't have the capacity to carry them home, yeah. which well. I said to him and he was like, we do ship. <laughs> but the reason I didn't is because I'm, I'm going back next week and I'm determined to buy some to bring home then. Nice. Yeah. I might even bring four books to trade. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I figured then I'll pack my bag accordingly Four books. You know, I can trade up for pickles. They had a lot of really fun paraphernalia, is that the right, or memorabilia on the walls, and their logo was cute. They had onesies for kids. It's a very fun little store. And a small fiction section. They had a lot of other kind of books, like nonfiction and art books and poetry, but really tiny, and it was hot. So Ellen and I didn't last very long, but it was fun to go. And I can't wait to take you. Very cool. Yeah, I love me a good pickle. Yeah, me too. Nice. Well, the only other Bibli adventure I had, it was on my couch. I watched the documentary, Turn Every Page, The Adventures of Robert Caro and Robert Gottlieb. This came out in 2022. And I enjoyed it so much. Caro is the writer of... The Johnson biographies that a lot of people know, Robert Gottlieb is a legendary editor, and it's about their decades-long relationship. There's a lot of tension between them when they're in the editorial process, and no one has ever been in the room with them before, and they were both resistant to this movie, but eventually it was done by Gottlieb's daughter, she eventually wore him down Hmm. and then Caro agreed to it as well. But they said, as long as there's no filming in the editorial room when we're working together, because they said 
I don't know if they use the word sacred, but it is a, a very special place and it's special work that's happening. So she did actually record a tiny bit of footage in there, but there was no sound. He oh, said, you cannot record us. Hmm. So vocals. is it so it's them talking to each other or being interviewed mostly? They're hardly ever together mm. in this documentary. It goes kind of back and forth between them. And then there are other people who are interviewed related to the process of their books. Really great. I highly recommend it. Carol's first book was about Robert Moses, the power broker, which I haven't read. But a lot of people have praised that book because um, one of Caro's or maybe his main thing in all of his work is trying to understand political power and how it works. And that bio on Robert Moses really was one of the first books to really dig into that. And Moses had so much power. He was a developer in New York City, so he was never elected but he had so much power mm. in the world. It made me want to read that book more because like, that's one that Barack Obama said really influenced him and how he thought about politics. And then I didn't know much about Gottlieb at all, but they showed some of the books that he has had a hand in editing. One of them was Catch-22. The original title was Catch-18. Oh, my and there was another book coming out that year with 18 in the title. And Gottlieb said, we can't have that. That is not going to be a good situation for your book. So they changed it. Gottlieb changed it to Catch-22. And they both thought it was really funny. And they're not really <laughs> sure why. But to think that that saying is so part of our everyday language, yeah. Catch-22. And to think that the guy who coined that based on that novel, I mean, that that's what that means. Right. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of mind-blowing when yeah. you really think about it. He was also an editor of Toni Morrison. And with her, they were in a perpetual state of war over commas. <laughs> Gottlieb and Morrison. And he really talked about editing being a service job, mm -hmm. that you were in service to the writer and that you're trying to give the writer your opinion on what they're trying to do and to help them do what they're trying to do. He's like, so you really have to leave your ego out of it. I loved it so much. Apparently he and Caro have a lot of arguments over semicolons. <laughs> I'm so shocked that he would do nonfiction and fiction. I always think of editors being in one lane. Right. I want to find a list of all of the books he's edited. That'd be interesting. Because it's so diverse. Mm -hmm. When they started showing covers, they don't show them all, but they do a series of covers. You just gasp because mm -hmm. it's like, wow, wow, mm -hmm. wow, that one too. I mean, it's just amazing. He is completely legendary. Absolutely. Anyway, highly recommend Turn every page. Um, as somebody called him, he is the Dumbledore of publishing. <laughs> That's great. I love that. So I got a um, DVD from our local library. It is streaming, but you have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. This episode is sponsored by Silver Hollow Audio announces Uncharted, a couple's empty nest adventure sailing from one life to another. Written and narrated by travel journalist Kim Brown Seely. Embarking on a grand adventure, Kim and husband Jeff sail into untamed wilderness where they face challenges brought on by weather, geography, and inexperience, and grapple with the mixed emotions of parents whose children have fledged. 
The author's lyrical voice shines through in this award-winning memoir, available wherever audiobooks are found. Enjoy this clip. The wind beat upon the white canvas, blowing an anthem like freedom. The sun was out, always a pleasant surprise in northern Canada. The sails were high, and we were higher, flying across a cold blue sea. Minutes before, we'd been enjoying a long crossing. The boat heeled over, humming along. Now it was time to start the engine, bring in the sails, and motor through a maze of small rock islands. But when we turned the key, nothing. So, Chris, do you have any upcoming jaunts? Yes. I'm going to Concord, Massachusetts on July 12th. Woo! Woo! (laughs) We will have read the Scarlet Letter by then. Yes. So we hope you'll consider joining us either virtually or in person or, you know, chat with us about the Scarlet Letter on Goodreads or social media, whatever you prefer. And one thing about reading the Scarlet Letter, I often advise people to skip the introduction to a book because quite often introductions have spoilers. It's shocking to me, but they do. But in the case of the Scarlet Letter, there's a preface that Hawthorne wrote that is one of those things that's generated a lot of conversation among literary buffs and scholars over the years. Like, why did he include this? Because it's about his experience at the Custom House. So I recommend you read that because it can be an interesting point of conversation for us all. And then that in relation to the Scarlet Letter will be interesting. But I always recommend skip the intro. Read that after you've read the story. I mean, really, I think we're all familiar with the story, even if we haven't read the book, because it is part of American culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a lot of ways, a catch-22, a scarlet letter, (laughs) you know. What about you? I have one tonight at RJ Julia and Madison with Gina Barreca in conversation with Helen Ellis about her new essay collection, Kiss Me in the Coral Lounge, Intimate Confessions from a Happy Marriage. And Gina Barreca was our guest on episode 132 with the essay collection, Fast Funny Women. That was an anthology. And we did that over Zoom because it was during the pandemic. So I'm looking forward to meeting her as well. Very cool. I look forward to hearing about that. Nice. How about upcoming reads? I have The Red Garden by Alice Hoffman. If you go to Alice Hoffman's Instagram feed, she just recently did a book club with The Red Garden because it's not a prequel of The Invisible Hour, which is our read-along book, but it takes place in the same town, The Invisible Hour. And The Red Garden stretches from 1750 to 1986. Emily Dickinson is a character. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it's a novel in stories. And on this Instagram video, she talks about, well, she answers people's questions about this book. She's funny as she's answering. She's like, when I was rereading it, I forgot, you know, (laughs) and I was thinking like, that's funny. I would have thought she would have reread it before she wrote The Invisible Hour, but it sure didn't sound like that. Maybe she did. I don't know. But The Invisible Hour picks up in current day in relation to this book, it picks up after 1986. So I'm excited to have an excuse to reread an Alice Hoffman and curious about it. She also talks about how she loves writing stories, short stories and reading a novel in short story format or linked stories, however you want to call it. And um, she talks about how she wrote one story. And then she kept feeling like she had more to say. And that's how the Red Garden came to be. 
So if you want to read what she's not calling a prequel, she said, if you read the Red Garden, then when you're reading the Invisible Hour, you'll see the Easter eggs that she drops based on things that happened in the Red Garden. Very nice. And the Red Garden is on our bingo card. It is indeed. So that's going to be my first. Well, unless I get the Scarlet Letter done first, we'll see. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to be reading The Witches by Stacy Schiff. Oh, right. Yeah, I've always wanted to read something by her. And I recently saw some interviews with her. So I did get a copy of that. And then I ordered a copy of Belonging by Nora Krug. The subtitle is A German Reckons with History and Home. And this is a graphic memoir drawn and written by the author. And a friend recently recommended it to me. I'm reading also upcoming The Better Half by Ali Frank and Asha Yeomans. They are going to be on the Cougs up ahead here in July. And this is a new book also in Mindy's book studio. Mindy Kaling has a new book imprint. These two have written a few books in the past. They're a writing duo. And this will be my first read of theirs. I'm excited to read it again. It's called The Better Half. And coming up next is our conversation with Beth Ann Patrick about her new memoir, Life B, Overcoming Double Depression. Enjoy. We're so excited to talk today with Beth Ann Patrick about her new memoir, Life B, Overcoming Double Depression. Known as the Book Maven on Twitter, she is also the creator of the Friday Reads hashtag. Beth Ann sits on the board of Penn Faulkner Foundation and has served on the board of the National Book Critics Circle. She's currently host of the Missing Pages podcast and writes regularly for the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, NPR Books, and Lit Hub. Welcome. Thank you both so much. Hi, Chris. Hi, Emily. Great to be here. So, Beth Ann, if you could just tell the listeners what your memoir is about. And I think it would also be helpful if you could frame you know, what the diagnosis is that you received that encouraged you to write this book? Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, the book is about a diagnosis I received when I was 52. What happened is I had been depressed for a long time and knew that I had depression from at least my late teens, if not even a little bit earlier. But as time went on and I received treatment and took medications and went to therapy, I knew I was still ill. I knew there was still something that wasn't working for me. And I felt like I was spinning my wheels, particularly with one therapist I saw for six or seven years and just thought, why is this not improving? And finally, After a really wonderful holiday season in 2015, I spiraled into a bad clinical depression and I went to my GP and said, we've got to change something. So she sent me to a new psychiatrist and she highly recommended him because he knew a lot about psychopharmacology. And after taking a very long family history for me and seeing me weekly for about six months, he diagnosed me with double depression, which is a combination of chronic depression, dysthymia, with episodes of major depression or what we call clinical depression. So a person with double depression starts out lower than a 
quote unquote normal person. I mean, normal isn't a word I'd use much anymore, but still start out low and go lower. And so I had been correct all along. There was something that wasn't working for me. I really did have an illness that hadn't been properly treated. And so once it was properly treated, my life changed a great deal. And I was able to experience some things that I really, I don't think I'd ever truly understood, like joy and stick-to-itiveness and um, stability and contentment and all kinds of things. So the book itself is a story of my illness. It starts when I'm young, it starts in early childhood, and it ends today where I am, or at least in, I would say it ends in 2021, the book itself. But it isn't everything in my life by any means, uh, even though it has been called brutally honest, and it is very honest, it's not everything that happened. It's really about getting the depression out of the way so that I could have a different kind of life. Yeah. Wow. yeah, it's a very intense and I admire your honesty and how you talk about your husband and your sister and mom and that you love them all, but they didn't understand. Certainly you didn't understand um, what you were going through at the time. And one of the things I appreciate and you know, got a little chuckle over is, uh, you know, kind of referring to yourself as an unreliable narrator of your own life and your own situations. And then now that you are on a path of healing, looking back your perspective on yourself, you're getting a different perspective on things that you thought you knew about all along. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, what it's like to, to be in a, a better place and looking back. Well, first of all, to be in a better place after all of this internal struggle is amazing. And I just want to say, as you mentioned, Chris, about my mother, my sister, my husband, I love them all very much. And I love our daughters very much. And I wanted to write this book for them. But I also knew that Depression had clouded my view of every relationship that I'd ever had. And one of the things about being in depression is that you are an unreliable narrator of your own life. You are not telling the whole story. You're not seeing the whole story. You're focusing on, can I get through this day? Can I make sure I don't hurt myself? Can I make sure that I don't Think about hurting myself so that I can do the tasks I'm supposed to be doing. And it's one thing when you know you're depressed. For instance, I knew I had depression before I knew about double depression. So when you know you have depression, you think, okay, I'm not going to get overtired because if I get overtired, then I may get lower in mood. I may get sadder. But when you're not aware that you have this cycling form of depression, you think you're doing everything you can, and yet you're not because you alone are not capable of fighting the disease. No one is trying to say, beat it all by yourself. When you don't know your proper diagnosis, you can't get the tools and the treatment and the support. So it made it 
really difficult um, for me, I think, to communicate with people. I think it made me feel that I was separate from everyone. One of the wonderful things about this book's release is that I'm hearing from people from all parts of my life, from elementary school, from college, from you know early jobs, et cetera. And they're all saying fantastic things to me. They're all saying, good for you. We support you. Is everyone thrilled about everything I wrote in the book? No, that's okay. <laughs> it's my truth. Right. And, you know, also I want to say my husband and my mother have been very, very supportive. It's a little bit harder with my sister and that's okay. That's the way it is right now. I am going to get through this, just like I've been able to get through other things. And now I'm able to say, I do love my sister and I do hope that we make it through this tough stretch and that I know I'll be okay. I know that I will be able to cope with whatever someone has to say about the book. If someone yeah. says, I hated it, that's all right. If someone says, why did you do this? That's all right. I I know that I can, that I can handle it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Let's talk about your family a little bit to give listeners some context for sure. how they show up in the book. So you start by talking about your grandparents and having a grandparent that lived upstairs that had some mental health challenges that nobody talked about. And that, that was kind of a, a family legacy is that the right word to use that that's inheritance maybe that's a better word to use that you grew up with where it wasn't talked about which is really common for people particularly people of a certain generation and we put ourselves in that generation i mean it's one of the things that we are so thankful for about this memoir is that you are helping to provide another conversation and a way in for people. So can you talk about that? I mean, you've alluded to the fact that it's created some problems with your sister, but let's give some context for your family history. Sure. My maternal grandmother lived upstairs on and off in our house. Uh, she was someone who was a little bit itinerant. Uh, among family members. And so she might be with us for several weeks and then with uh, one of her sisters for a few weeks and then back with us. Finally, when I was around 11 or 12, my parents realized she couldn't keep doing that. You know, she was getting older and having more trouble getting around. And so they constructed a little apartment in our basement. And this is a small Cape Cod house, okay? Not on Cape Cod, Cape Cod style. And uh, there wasn't a lot of room. Uh, she lived in that little apartment for about five years. And then some subsidized housing for senior citizens came open and she was able to move to an apartment there, which at the time, I remember, I thought, I'd like an apartment like this. It was pretty <laughs> nice. Um, but during the year she was living first in our, you know, second floor and then in our basement, it was very difficult, not because it's uncommon, okay? I think it's quite common for grandparents to live with their children and their grandchildren in many different cultures and regions, okay? But the thing that made it really difficult is first, Emily, you mentioned we weren't supposed to be talking about it. I'm talking 
not just about her being mentally ill, but we weren't supposed to talk about the fact that we had grandma in the house because grandma's behavior was very erratic. That's what, you know, not mentally ill, erratic. And my mother in particular, her daughter, found it really tough and wasn't really able to communicate in an affectionate way with her own mother. I think the stress of trying to raise two small children along with having this parent that was erratic and you know challenging to have living with us was too much for her. And but that for me was the really hard part of it. It wasn't even so much that it's a small house and we've got another adult in it. It was that I never heard grandma referred to in a loving way that we weren't really supposed to spend time with her and you couldn't because she really was quite erratic and quite unstable, but my parents wanted to keep us apart from her too. That's really tough. That is, you know, I never want to co-opt trauma too much, but it is a kind of trauma to have someone there in the house that you're being, you know, warned You can't have friends over to play because grandma doesn't like noise. You can't have a sleepover because then people will know about grandma and her mess and her trouble. Like she would cook and the cooking she did was always like just redolent of like onions, 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 onions. The whole house would smell like onions. My mother hated that. And I don't blame her. I don't blame my mother for hating that. But this gap was very difficult for a child to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned Gilbert and Gubar, their famous work, you know, The Mad Woman in the Attic. And just, I think the last read-along book we read was The Reading List by Sarah Nisha Adams. And there's mental health issues in that book as well. And for younger readers, like maybe people 30s, possibly 40s and younger, they grew up with mental health being discussed on TV, and radio shows and and now podcasts. And I think folks of our generation, it wasn't until we were maybe in our 20s, possibly 30s, that people started talking about this openly and just what a major shift that is. But there's still so much misunderstanding about mental health and, and personality disorders. And you make the distinction between mental health challenges and personality disorders that they're two different things. And I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I am differentiating between brain and chemistry-based mental illnesses and personality disorders like borderline personality disorder that we still aren't sure comes from chemistry or heredity or stress in early childhood development or a combination of all of those. The one thing we do know is that these things are separate in a way, regardless of their beginnings. Okay. So depression, bipolar syndrome, schizophrenia, those kinds of illnesses are not the same as a personality disorder. And the thing about it is You can treat depression or bipolar syndrome or schizophrenia with medication. You cannot treat a personality disorder with medication. 
and I think that's something I don't really make clear enough in the book. Oh, hindsight. Uh, <laughs> but I do think what's really important to know is that these personality disorders are really tough to treat and they cannot be addressed until a person is really ready to say, I will do the work. I will do the cognitive behavioral therapy or the dialectic behavior therapy that will help me get out of this sort of way of living and communicating that is detrimental to my own stability and happiness. And it's really difficult from what I've learned from my caregivers to convince someone, for instance, with narcissism, that treatment will help or to convince someone who is a borderline. And that's a very complicated system. There's so much more to say about that. And, you know, much more that has been written that I, a non-professional, can explain. However, I think it was really important for me to say that and talk about it a bit because I don't have a personality disorder. I may have a bad personality. That could be true, <laughs> but I don't have that specifically. And in the book, as you know, my sister is convinced that all of us have a personality disorder. Those are two words I have a really tough time saying. Um, <laughs> you know, the fact is, I don't know if that is still a diagnosis she has. At one point, she was diagnosed with one. I am not a professional. I am not her care provider, but seeing it and, and seeing the results of it made me realize that there's so much work we all have to do when we have these problems ourselves, in our families, um, in our communities, that we all have to educate ourselves so much more. So that's the really important part of it for me, the yeah. education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can we talk about books for a minute? <laughs> just books in general? <laughs> the, there's a part of, that just made me giggle out loud because I just felt that you were one of my people or I'm one of your people. I don't know the best way to say it. Well, definitely one of, you know, we, Chris, we are, we yes. are part of the same community <laughs> yes. for sure. Yes. <laughs> and I love this when, when you talk about going to the scholastic semi-annual school book fairs and how I can still smell them when you, you say that. Yeah. And the posters that I could buy and things like that. But then what you talk about later in this same chapter is that books really were and are the way that you were able to self-soothe. They helped you numb. And in, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, people use other things to numb that may not be so healthy as books. I mean, you kind of explain that it could be problematic sometimes, but then you ended up making a career out of this. So can you talk about your experience with books and how that's kind of, in my view, saved your life? Uh, you know, it's so interesting that you say that because one person I was working with wanted me to write about how books saved my life. And I said, I can't write that because to me, it isn't true. But I hear what you're saying, Emily, and I hear what you're saying after reading what I wrote, because books, reading, talking about books, talking to authors, all of the things I've done, it has been a way of saving my life. It's been a way of saying to myself, here's something you love, something you can do. Let's find a way to make it your full-time job because 
that will lift you up and save you. Someone recently told me that they now understood, having read the book, that my marriage to Adam, as he's called in the book, everyone's names are changed in the book, was a way of saving my own life. It was a way of saying, I know something isn't working, so let me cling to this life-saving ring. Mm -hmm. And same thing with books. That doesn't mean I'm going to give them up now, okay? (laughs) You know, now that I have better treatment and now that I've done more work and am getting healthier and more stable all the time, I still love Adam, still married to Adam, and I still love books. And here we go. Look at those shelves. You know, I mean, (laughs) I am never going to give up my love of reading, but I don't read to numb myself Mm. anymore. And Emily, I think what you said is so, so good. You know, there's a scene where I go to the psychiatric ward and I talk about having all these books with me. I brought an enormous bag of hardcovers and I, in the book, think, oh gosh, that was pretty, you know, arrogant of me. Like here I am with all the books, I'm special, you know, and I was still numbing myself at that time. Now, when I read, it is because I really want to read. And, you know, if I'm having a tough day or if I can't sleep, I know, okay, this book might help me. It might help me zone out instead of trying to use reading as something that will numb all the pain, Mm. you know, that I have. Mm. Because now I know I'm going to have pain. I'm not going to have a perfect life from now on, okay? Just because I got treated and got a good diagnosis. We all have pain and suffering and bad things that happen. But when I approach something to read, it will be for a different reason. And I'm really happy about that. I want to mention quickly that there was a beautiful piece that my colleague, Michael Schaub, a book critic based in Texas, wrote for the Boston Globe a week or two ago about his own battle with depression and how reading has saved his life. And I think it's different for everyone. And he is telling the truth just as I am. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, now I was wondering if we could talk about a specific word. And it's the word overcoming in the subtitle, mm-hmm. overcoming double depression. And so I just had a question about the word, because for me, I kind of feel like overcoming is like leaving something behind, whereas like learning to live with, to me, felt more like what you were sharing in the book. So I'm just curious about the word overcoming. And if you could talk a little bit about that word. That's the first time I've been asked that, Chris, and I am really glad you asked it. Um, I'm not sure how we, how or when we came up with that. That was not entirely my word. I do know that. But I think what we did mean by it was that I was on the other side of something and by Being on the other side doesn't mean it's gone, doesn't mean I don't have double depression anymore. I do. I am a depressive. I'm a person who has a depressive form of mental illness. But by being on the other side, I am in a place where I can focus on mental wellness instead of being an ill person who is in constant need 
of being propped up. I now am looking at the illness as not just something that I can treat, but also something that's part of me that also gives me some good things. Uh, you know, a friend said to me yesterday that what I've been through, both in terms of actual factual circumstances, you know, upbringing and experience and all of that, along with coping with this illness, well, it's made me who I am. You know, it's made me a person who is probably more compassionate, probably more intentional, I hope. And someone who now being on the other side and overcoming can actually listen to other people instead of always trying to take things in and think, how is this going to affect me? How is this going to affect me? How is this going to affect me? Mm -hmm. So I think that's where the overcoming derives from. But I do agree with you that it, it's true. You know, you don't overcome depression or bipolar syndrome. You learn how to live with it and cope and treat it and manage it. And I think that's very important for people to know. So we'll see. I wonder yeah. if the paperback will have a different color. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, thank you so much for speaking about that because I've had my own life struggles with depression. And I really appreciate you saying that you still have pain, you still have hardship and because that's life, you know? Yes. And I think sometimes people, they do feel like when they first get a diagnosis and treatment that they're waiting for this perfect day to arrive. Hopefully some of us do have perfect days here and there, but that's usually not how life rolls out. <laughs> it's absolutely not how life rolls out. And let me tell you, I had the most wonderful launch week for this book. And it was not, you know, a big, crazy hullabaloo. It was beautiful. It was just very... It was just the right size, okay? Wonderful week. Uh, media, a launch, a party, hearing from friends and loved ones. But then this week, and I shared this in my blog and also on Twitter, I had a couple of really sharp, painful things happen and not about Life B. They were completely separate from that. And you learn how to, to live through the rough times. That's something that is... I think a constant learning process. And one of the things that I've learned feels like I'm saying I'm talking to people all the time. I'm not always <laughs> on the phone or on email, but I did have a conversation with a writer friend this morning and she said, well, I see that you're having some pain and some depression and, you know, I'm really sorry about that. And I said, you know, it's okay because I'm not going to spiral down the way I once would have. I know how to say I'm depressed, but here's the other part. I know that I need me, not everyone. I need to talk about it. Mm. I need to say, whether it's on social media or a podcast interview or in a phone call, I'm having a hard time. I'm struggling. One of the things I say in blog posts and other pieces that I've written about this is not everyone is ready to talk about having an ill, any kind of illness, right? Doesn't even matter whether it's mental or not. And if you are not ready, you in general, not ready to talk about mental illness that you have or that someone close to you has, it is not my business to wrest that from you. My business is to tell my story. And if my story helps, 
if it inspires, if it makes people ask questions and get more information, that's all it's there for. But I feel really comfortable now being able to talk about it quite openly. It's not something I recommend for everyone, but I have to do that. Yeah. 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 Cool. Thank you for that. Bethan, you spend a lot of your time as a book critic and book reviewer. What's it been like for you to be reading reviews of your book or do you not read them? I do. No, I do read them. So one of the sort of traditions in the publishing world is that your editor calls you with the advanced reviews, right? So the Publishers Weekly, the Kirkus, the Library Journal, that kind of thing. And I really appreciated getting those calls and being able to speak with someone who cares about the book so much in going through, you know, one um, review was incredible. One review had some tough things to say and being able to speak about that with my editor was wonderful, but it also convinced me that I could learn so much from reading my reviews and Throughout my career, I've been at this now for almost 25 years. First, I have really fought to be a book critic. And when I say fought, I don't necessarily mean with anyone else, um, mostly against myself. You know, I wasn't necessarily the best critic when I started writing. Um, I've worked hard to become a strong voice in book reviewing and literary criticism, and I still have a lot to learn. But What that helped me learn also was along the way, I might write a review and then hear from an author saying, thank you, you taught me something about my work. Or I might hear from someone saying, that was really hard, but maybe you're right. And so I thought, what can I learn from my own reviews? And I'm learning a lot from them. Some of what I learn is, oh, you really didn't get it. Then other things I think, oh, okay, you know, that could be useful. On one hand, I want to say there haven't been so many reviews, but I remember that there aren't that many reviews anymore. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I've gotten the ones that I have, I'm pretty fortunate. I mean, that is a real privilege for me to have some of the hits that I've gotten. And so I don't want to ignore them. I don't want to say, oh, I never read the reviews because I know those people have taken my book seriously. They've read it and they've considered it. And not one review that I've read has been nasty or a brush off. Mm -mm, No, it's people who are smart and are giving an opinion. And I value that. Great. So one of the scenes that I found really poignant in the book is when you go out to lunch with your daughter, Emma, who's now an adult And Emma's had some struggles of her own throughout her childhood. You're there to talk to her post-diagnosis, and you apologize to her. And she gets visibly upset, and she wants to leave the restaurant, and you don't let her. You really kind of hold her there and have this difficult conversation. And I really appreciated that as both a mother and a daughter, Can you talk about what that experience has been like for you as a mother? I can. And thank you so much, Emily, for that question. I want to say that Emma, uh, again, not her real name, just returned from two months overseas after a job layoff. And oh, how beautiful to watch an adult child 
have these experiences of a lifetime and communicate with you about them and want to call and text and send photos. It's just the most beautiful, beautiful thing. And if I had not had that conversation with her, if I had not said, I am sorry for the absolute gaps in my parenting, the problems in my parenting, we wouldn't have this relationship now. We have a relationship now. I don't necessarily believe in parents being best friends with their children. I want our daughters to have their own lives, their private lives, the things that they, you know, whatever belongs to them, belongs to them. But both of our daughters love to spend time with us and vice versa. A lot of that comes from, you know, privilege, from privilege of education, privilege of financial resources, privilege of time and space and, you know, leisure and all these things. But it also comes from being really honest and open. It also comes from listening to those children when they say something you're doing is painful to me. Something you're doing isn't working. And being able to say, okay, I get it. You know, I am, for instance, this is a very small example and probably comes from the fact that my moods that were low could be so, so low. So I would often talk about something and say, oh, I hate that. I hate it. I hate it. And finally, our younger daughter said, Martha in the book said, hate is a very strong word, mom. Are you sure you mean to use that word? Maybe it's not something you should toss around quite so easily. And I thought, Mm. Mm, yes never occurred to me it was so easy to say hate that hate that you yeah. know it's a uh, by maintaining this open communication i learned so much more i i learned so much from them and you know one of the things i've been doing lately is i've started teaching creative writing at american university and this was my first semester this past semester going back in the fall and I keep telling people, I cannot believe how much I'm learning from my students. Anyone who doesn't think they're learning from their students or from their children, I think is, I don't want to say they're doing it wrong, but maybe <laughs> they could spend a little bit more attention, yeah. you know, on that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Teaching creative writing. That has to be exciting. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, or do you not want to go in that direction? Like I'm, oh, I'm no, I'm happy to talk oh, about okay. it. Are you kidding? All right. I'll talk about anything. <laughs> Cause I'm, uh, look I'm, at my book. <laughs> um, I love it so much. Um, my wonderful, wonderful friend and colleague, Melissa Scholes Young is the director of the undergraduate writing program at AU. And even though I live very close to AU, I didn't really know much about it. And I thought, Oh, gosh, I'm going to go in there. And these students, it's a private university. They're going to be very privileged and very entitled. Guess what? A lot of them are very privileged, not all of them, but very few of them are entitled. I think part of that is all of them have lived through the pandemic with the rest of us. This new generation, whether it's Gen Z or something younger than Gen Z, they know what it, it's like to have something tough happen, to have a big stumbling block put in your way by the universe. I 
thought they were very open. I thought they were very, very honest with me. Sometimes, you know, it's difficult. We are more attentive to challenges, learning challenges, mental health challenges now. Sometimes that means that someone doesn't show up, but they've got a letter saying if they don't show up, it's okay. And if you stick to the old school method of teaching, that is going to make you nuts, right? We all showed up for classes, you know, parents were paying and, you know, and that was what you were supposed to do. They're more concerned about their whole selves now. And I think that's a great thing. So I didn't mind um, being a bit of an easy grader if it meant that I could encourage and inspire them. So I am really excited. I'm teaching two very interesting classes in the fall. One is about literary editing and publishing. And the other one is about ethics and creative writing. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a lot of work. That's my summer. There's my summer. (laughs) (laughs) But it's going to be incredibly fulfilling for me. And you know, because you both read the book that I did not wind up getting my PhD. I did not wind up with a terminal degree. And so to have this chance to teach at the college level is just it's a dream i really love it Mm, that's great yeah now how is this impacting your own writing and what is next in your writing universe if we can ask that question oh you absolutely may ask that question and you know one of the things that i'm learning probably a little slowly because i think i'm a slow learner overall is that i can't do everything you know there have been a couple of regular gigs that I've had that I have had to say or be said to, this isn't working because you've got too much on your plate. And that is fair. I have a lot on my plate. I've got a podcast, um, you know, second season in production. I've got the teaching. I had a book launch. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And I am not doing as much of my own writing as I want to, which is another reason that this summer is very important for me because I have a book proposal that I'm working on. I won't say anything more about that right now, but I am working on a second. It's a memoir, another memoir. And just for anyone who thinks, well, another memoir, didn't you just lay it all on the table already. (laughs) Remember what I said at the beginning, it's not everything. And every, you know, a lot of people have more than one memoir Mm -hmm. in them. And I definitely uh, do. So that is pretty exciting to be working on that. And I am also starting to work on fiction again, which I left aside for several years while I tormented myself with the memoir. And when I say tormented myself, it wasn't because of going back to difficult periods in my life. It was because I sold the memoir on proposal rather than having the entire manuscript already written. So it took me a while to teach myself how to write a memoir. So that's the torment part. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. Well, this has been fabulous. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Yeah, really nice to talk to you. You are so welcome, Chris and Emily. I mean, I want now I want to know much more about the Cougars. (laughs) And I'm going to um, going to definitely learn it now. Um, I will 
keep you posted on everything and I hope to come back in the future. But for right now, I'm just so glad to get the chance to talk about life being in such a meaningful way. Thank you. Thank you, Bethann. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.